Hello, everyone. Welcome to the last uh, Notre Dame International Security Center seminar of the semester. It is unbelievable to me that the semester is ending so soon. Um, it's just a whirlwind and a crash. Feels like a freight train um, uh, uh, coming towards me instead of riding it. But I hope I hope you're all doing well. And um, uh, I want to thank you for joining us for the NDISC series and remind you that when the spring semester rolls around forever from now in February, um, uh, we will pick up again with a great series uh, hosted by my colleague, Joe Parent in the spring. Um, so please look forward to that. And um, I hope you're getting the email announcements about the upcoming seminars. If not, please contact NDISC. Uh, uh, Anika Johnson would be very happy to put you on our um, email list uh, and uh, make sure you get those notices when the time comes. And um, um, yeah, so we look forward to that. Uh, I know there's also a, a competing event happening today um, that occupies some of our attention in the back of our mind. Um, it's not an especially important event um, for most of us because I hope we have all already voted um, such that uh, we have nothing to do except watch whichever candidate we preferred ride to victory um, as all of our compatriots flock to our colors. Um, and I assume that simultaneously, whoever, you know, both sides, whoever you wanted to win, will both win. So we'll see. But um, uh, don't think too much about the election. Let's think about um, a lighthearted topic, uh, foreign imposed regime change. Um, not a lighthearted topic, but a very important topic um, and a very interesting paper from uh, Lindsay O'Rourke, uh, who's an associate professor at Boston College and a, a good friend of NDISC. She's spoken at uh, NDISC or participated in NDISC events before. Um, uh, she does uh, uh, terrific work. She uh, wrote an award-winning book, which I'll uh, tout to all of you, called um, Covert Regime Change and um, uh, has written a number of articles uh, related to that and on other topics, uh, lots of important topics in international relations. And um, we're thrilled to have her uh, today to talk about um, uh, some new work that she's doing uh, with another friend, Alex Downs, um, called Picking Your Friends, Foreign Imposed Regime Change and the Quality of International Relations. And um, so just a quick reminder, uh, Lindsay's gonna talk for 30 or 35 minutes and then we're gonna open it up to um, uh, questions and answers. I will keep the cue for the questions and I'll go through the directions uh, for questions again after Lindsay finishes. But some of you know, and so it's only fair to tell everyone, the queue is open right away. So you can uh, just raise your hand in the participants window if you wanna get on the queue. Um, um, and, uh, uh, whenever you have a question, uh, feel free to jump in. But with that, um, I look forward to hearing. Uh, let's all welcome virtually Lindsay O'Rourke. Great. Thank you so much, Eugene, for the introduction. I really am delighted to be here. Um, Notre Dame has such a fantastic group of security scholars, um, and it's really been my privilege to interact with you every time I have. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me, and thanks for Anika for working out all the logistics for it. Um, as you said, I'll be talking about um, the impact of foreign-imposed regime change on the subsequent relations between the intervening and the target state. Um, just a little bit of background on this paper before I get into uh, the talk 
it is a co-authored paper with me and Alex Downs. Um, Alex and I have both been working on, on book projects um, on regime change, as Eugene mentioned. Um, what was my dissertation and then my first book was on America's covert regime changes during the Cold War, where I did a lot of archival research and came up with this case, uh, data set of 64 um, covert regime change attempts. And then I used it to analyze the um, causes, conduct, and consequences of covert regime change. Alex, um, on the other hand, has a book project, uh, hopefully soon to be coming out on overt regime change, um, where he looked at all international um, overt regime changes since 1816. Um, and so he and I have teamed up to write a few papers together. Um, we wrote one on, um, on, on conflict, this one is on political relations between states. We have another one on human rights, another one on democracy. Um, but this particular one, uh, the idea is that we're gonna bring together our respective data sets and use it to investigate the phenomenon of how does regime change affect intervener target relations. Um, this particular paper, I wrote the theory and the case for it and Alex is doing the stats. And so it's kind of in this flux point where I've written like halfway through writing it, I decided to change how I was presenting the theory. And Alex hasn't had a chance to update all the stats, um, which is why hypothesis three and four aren't really tested um, in it. But, you know, I'm a good person. Like, I'm really excited to present it to you because, you know, working out the framing, the theory and, and the case study is sort of the first part for um, getting this paper under control. All right, so with that, I'll begin. Um, okay, so, um, the big question that we're asking in this paper is, does foreign imposed regime change or FERC as we call it, improve the quality of intervener target relations? Um, you know, when a, another state overthrows a country and replaces its leader, can it turn an adversary into an ally? Can it fundamentally change the, the nature of that relationship? Um, the reason we ask this question is that there has been, you know, a limited number of studies looking at the effect of regime change on relations. Um, but the two big studies, Alex and I's on, on conflict and then a competing study by Lo Hashimoto and Reiter um, came to competing conclusions. Lo Hashimoto and Reiter found that uh, regime changes actually increase the duration of peace following uh, wars that include in a regime change, whereas Downs and I found that regime change tended to, uh, whether it was successful or failed, exacerbate relationships between the two states. So um, this paper puts forth a variety of arguments on both sides, sort of all the arguments laying out for why you think it would work, and then the counter arguments. Um, and just to preview our answer, we say we don't expect regime change to improve intervener target relations. We're, we're skeptical of the, the positive impacts of regime change. Okay, um, so a quick roadmap of the talk today. Um, I'm going to give you first just the sort of literature overview, the, the arguments for why FERC should or should not improve the political relationships between the two states. Um, then I'll talk about the quantitative results, which really is kind of Alex's big thing. Um, then we do a case study of U.S. relationships with Hamid Karzai. Um, and finally, some conclusions and a couple of questions I would, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Okay, um, so when it comes to the idea that regime change can improve the relations between the intervening and target states, um, proponents of this belief have really made, laid out four arguments for how they think regime change could have this positive um, effect. So I, I labeled them regime change optimists in the paper, and I'm just gonna briefly go through each of these arguments for why we think regime change could have this positive effect. Um, the first one is very simple, um, is basically the idea that with a regime change, you get the opportunity to install a like-minded puppet. Um, you have some country that's giving you a problem 
if you replace that leader with somebody who wants the same thing as you do, um, when that new leader acts in their own self-interest, they should be acting in yours as well. Um, this is an argument that many people, um, most notably Bueno de Mesquita and, and uh, George Downs put forth, um, arguing that you, know, you, you can establish um, basically a, a patron-client relationship. Okay, and if this is true, it brings us to our first hypothesis, um, hypothesis one, that replacing foreign leaders should increase the political affinity of the intervening and target states. So they should get along better, if this works. Um, the second optimistic take is uh, the democratization argument. Um, and here the argument really is that democracies enjoy a special affinity and more cooperative relationships with one another. So if a democracy installs a democracy in another state, those two democracies should then have better relationships. Um, Low Hashimoto and Ryder make this argument explicitly in the piece I talked about earlier. But this is also just basically the, as IR scholars, I'm sure you all know, democratic peace theory, um, people who believe that there's either normative or structural reasons for how, why two democracies should have more cooperative relations. Okay, and if this is true, um, takes us to hypothesis two, um, that FERCs that promote democracy should increase the political affinity of a democratic intervener and the target state. All right, um, third pathway for how regime changes could improve relations. Um, another argument that people have made is that the act of regime change essentially creates a dependent relationship between the intervening and the target. Um, and if you install a, a leader who's highly dependent on the intervener to maintain their position in power, essentially it's like a patron-client relationship, then they'll have to act in their patron's interest. And through that, you should get more cooperative relations between the, the two states. Um, this is an argument that was, uh, you know, put forth in sort of many bargaining theories um, when it came to foreign aid. Um, also, some Marxist dependency theories argue that, um, you know, uh, the, the act of regime change can create almost a socialization where the subordinate states begin to think in the ways where they they support their their patrons' interest. Um, there's also another sort of a new, more nuanced take on this. Um, Brian Lai and Daniel Morey, when they looked at U.S. foreign aid, uh, U.S. foreign military and aid, they found that this idea that giving aid and making another state dependent on you, it only really worked with non-democracies. Um, this effect didn't work with democracies. So from this group of arguments, we have two hypotheses. Um, hypothesis 3A, basically, FERCs that install dependent leaders, increase the political affinity. And then hypothesis 3B, which is working on like the Brian Line, Daniel Morey thing, just refines the hypothesis to say that this should only happen with authoritarian regimes. Um, okay. And the final sort of optimistic pathway for how regime change um, could improve uh, intervening target relations is this idea that um, there's certain types of regime changes that pursue hegemonic goals. Um, this came out of um, some works on regional hegemony. Um, and also in my book, I describe one of the, the main rationales that the US pursued regime change during the Cold War was for these hegemonic operations in the Western hemisphere. But the basic idea behind this logic is um, these types of operations help to create a hierarchical interstate order between a regional hegemon and subordinate states. And that the hegemon, um, installs leaders to accept the intervener's position. Um, and then they maintain this relationship by 
providing troops, diplomatic support, and economic benefits, um, and in exchange, they give protection to the subordinate state. Okay, so if this is true, um, we would expect this type of regime change, this hegemonic type of regime change to increase the political affinity between the intervening and target states. Okay, so those were the four you know, causal pathways for why we think regime change might improve relations between the, other, the two sides. Other uh, people uh, doubt that regime change is going to have much effect on relations. So here I've grouped three pessimistic takes on why regime change won't improve relations. Um, the first one is just rooted in structural realism. Um, you know, realists believe that a state's uh, foreign behavior is largely a product of its position in the international system. Um, so they don't you know, one implication of structural realism is that replacing the leadership of a state shouldn't have much impact on that state's behavior, um, because regardless of who is in power, they're going to face the same, you know, international environment and geopolitical constraints. Um, so regime change just shouldn't work. It shouldn't have much effect one way or the other. Um, here I have a quote from Mearsheimer, um, just laying this out. He said, Realists believe that the behavior of the great powers is influenced mainly by their external environment, not by their internal characteristics. The structure of the international system, which all states must deal with, largely shapes their foreign policies. Realists tend not to draw a distinction between good and bad states because all powers act according to the same logic, regardless of their culture, political system, or who runs the government. So the basic implication here is that, you know, regime change shouldn't have a big impact on, on state behavior. Okay. Um, a second pessimistic view, which is the, the view that Alex and I have written on um, the most in our own work, um, focuses on interest asymmetry. And the basic idea is that if you look at the set of international disputes that lead to regime change, it's often a great power intervening into a minor state. And the great power had been demanding that the minor state, you know, acquiesce to some of their demands, but the, the minor states refuses to do so, um, thus jeopardizing their future. So the question is, why didn't they just acquiesce to the powerful state when they told them, you know, to do something? And the reason that we argue that they didn't is that they had particularly compelling reasons not to want to, either domestic political pressures or pressures from their international, their inter inter their international environment. Um, so when you replace a, a, a government um, in this manner via regime change, we say it leads to a catch-22, that given this basic interest asymmetry between the intervening and the target state, newly installed leaders um, must respond to two masters, their foreign intervener and their domestic population. And this puts them in a bind. If they act in a way that favors the intervener, this tends to generate a nationalist backlash against them and a lot of domestic resentment. Um, in fact, we found that more than half of leaders that were installed um, via regime change were forcibly overthrown by domestic audiences through coups or assassinations, revolutions. So if you favor your patron, you get in trouble. Flip side, if you favor your domestic audiences, then you're turning against your patron. And again, conflict between the two states can resume. So regardless of which path you go, the ultimate result tends to be a deterioration of relationships between the intervening and target um, government. Okay, so I hope that makes sense. Um, so that was the main sort of logic that we lay out. Um, this meshes with some other, uh, some other IR work who would focus on the problem of uh, interest asymmetry, not focusing on specifically on regime change, but 
um, security force assistance, uh, state building with Lake. But the basic implication of this, this argument um, and also the realism argument um, is that regime changes should have no effect on the political affinity between the intervening and the target state, um, either due to the pressures of the international system or because of these domestic opposition. Um, the newly installed leaders will, you know, revert to their previous behavior and relations between the intervening and the target state should not improve. Okay, and the final argument against this is um, a little bit more extreme version of this argument. Um, and this, this argument came out of the, uh, the foreign aid literature. And there's some people who argue um, that when a state is highly dependent on a patron um, for its position in power, it actually kind of creates a reverse leverage system um, that uh, they're able to manipulate the other state. Um, and so the targets understand that they can, that they are so important to their foreign protector that they can defy that foreign protector without consequences. And so it's almost like the tail wagging the dog. Um, so if this is true, we might see, a, a, you know, um, things move in the opposite way. Hypothesis six is that FERCs could reduce the political affinity of intervening in target states. Okay, I hope that made sense. All right, so just to briefly summarize these hypotheses, um, you know, there's, there's four different pathways for which we could see regime change improve the relationship between the intervening and the target by installing a puppet, by democratizing the target, by creating a dependency, um, or by fostering hegemony. Um, hypothesis one and two, we checked in the paper. Hypothesis three and four, um, you know, Alex hasn't run the statistics on it yet, um, but he will be. Um, the counter argument is that FERC has no effect on uh, dyadic affinity. Um, these are the, the, the arguments rooted in structural realism, this interest asymmetry, and the catch-22 argument that Alex and I make. And then finally, there's um, the argument that FERC could actually reduce dyadic affinity because of that reverse leverage problem um, that is hypothesis six. Okay, um, to test this, um, we decided to um, undertake a quantitative study um, which looked at my sample of covert regime changes, US-backed covert regime changes during the Cold War, and Alex's sample of international overt regime changes. Um, and we used to measure uh, the, like, the political affinity of the two states, what we decided to look at was the similarity of their UN voting behavior, which I know is an imperfect measure of political affinity, but it's kind of the one used in the literature and the best that we could come up with. Um, our finding, which I'll go over more in a second, is that neither overt nor covert FERCs um, have a significant effect on dyadic affinity between intervening and targets. Um, after I go over the statistics real quick, I'll, I'll talk about the case study a little bit more um, where I analyze U.S. relationships with the Karzai regime. Okay, um, so our research design, um, I won't go into too much um, detail, but it's a directed dyad um, data set looking at um, politically relevant states. Um, so either a great power, all great powers and other states in the system or states that are geographically contiguous, we, we might expect them to have a regime change. Um, our dependent variable is this dyadic affinity of the S-score. Um, it is based on um, United Nations General Assembly uh, voting behavior, whether the two states voted alongside um, or opposed to one another. And this, this DV focuses, there's one measure of it that focuses on all votes and then there's another one that focuses on only like strategically important votes. Um, we look at both of those. Um, our intervening variable is um, a foreign imposed regime change. 
um, and we looked at you know the effect of the, the regime change in the subsequent 10 years on the target and intervening states UN voting behavior. Um, this includes from Alex's data set overt FERCs worldwide, um, both successful and failed cases. So he has 99 successes and 33 failures. Um, he also breaks it down by the type of regime change. Um, leadership regime changes only re replace the political leader at the top and don't do anything to the underlying political systems. You're basically just like replacing one dictator with another dictator. Institutional re regime changes is when you're trying to replace the leader and the political system of the target state. Um, so often like democratizing your target. And then restoration, there's a, a small subset of restoration cases. And these are when you're trying, you're installing a leader who had been ousted within the previous five years. Um, in our sample, most of these are governments that were thrown out in World War II when the Nazis invaded and then um, were put back in post-World War II. Okay, um, from my data set of covert regime changes, we look at US interventions during the Cold War. We have 64 cases, um, 25 of them, the US-backed forces came to power and 39 times they failed. Um, so we have both successes and failures and we don't have any restoration covert cases, but we also have um, successful leadership versus successful institutional. Okay, um, so when it comes to our research method, we, we tried looking at it two different ways. Um, the first thing that we just do is try to compare the effect of the regime change on the target states, its um, political affinity before and after the, the regime change. Um, so to do this, we use just an ordinary least squared regression with fixed effects on the target states and a lag DV, um, which basically is accounting for the fact that the biggest predictor of its subsequent UN voting behavior is its previous UN voting behavior. So that looks at variation within the country. Um, the problem with that though, is that of course, you know, states don't randomly choose who they conduct a regime change to. You could argue that um, they're more likely to do regime changes against states where they have particularly bad relations. So the second way that we try to get around that is through genetic matching. Um, and what genetic matching does is try, it creates two samples of cases. Um, one is the, the sample of, of states where um, there was a regime change and another one that is as similar as possible without having a regime change. Um, and so it's supposed to sort of overcome like this, this problem of, of selection bias. Um, and then we compare the uh, affinity of the two states, um, the, the treatment and the non-treated group. Okay, um, hope that made sense as well. All right, um, so I'll just briefly go over the stats. This is something that Alex did, um, but um, the first measure of the, the fixed effects looking at over regime changes, here we just have them summarized. Um, all I want to show you here is that um, what we have is the effects with the uh, the uncertainty bands, 95% uncertainty. And you can see that regardless of what type of operation we looked at, whether we did all FERCs, successful versus failed, leadership, uh, institutional or restoration, um, none of these had a, stati a statistically significant effect. Um, the second way that we looked at it is by matching um, to control for selection bias where we create the two samples. Um, and here again, regardless of the way that we looked at the overt cases, um, none of them were statistically significant. None of these distinctions matter. None of them saw an improvement in the political affinity of the intervening versus target state. 
Okay, um, looking at covert cases, when we look first just at uh, the fixed effect models, and when we break it down, we actually did find that there was uh, one statistically significant distinction. Um, contrary to our expectations, we found that successful um, covert regime changes improved political affinity and failed ones uh, decreased it. Each improved about 25 or improved or decreases about 25%. Um, but once we controlled for the problem of selection bias via matching, none of them were statistically significant anymore. So our conclusion from this is that we found little evidence for hypothesis one or two that FERC's improved political affinity. Um, the strongest support was for hypothesis five that uh, FERC has no effect on political affinity, that there's something else, either the structure of the international system or the domestic opposition um, that overcomes um, the cooperative effects of regime change. Okay, so that was the quantitative uh, section. The, the qualitative, the case study, um, which I wrote and I'm a little bit more familiar with, um, focuses on US relationships with Hamid Karzai. Um, and I chose this case um, for a number of reasons. Um, I'm personally just interested in it, but I also think it's a, a good test for our theory. Um, kind of a hard test for our theory uh, for a few reasons. Um, first is that uh, if there was ever a case that you would expect that a regime change could work, um, that having a particularly you know good leader in the other states um, would make a difference, Afghanistan could be it. Um, U.S.-Afghan relations um, began unusually strong. Bush and, and Karzai had a particular affinity for him. Um, Bush called Karzai his best friend on a couple of occasions. Um, a second reason why I think that Afghanistan is a good case for us is contrary to popular belief, um, the US actually decided to pursue regime change against the Taliban before 9-11. Um, one of the interesting things that came out of the 9-11 commission was that on September 10th, the day before the attacks, there was actually a meeting um, at the White House where they just, they were talking about US policy towards the Taliban. And at that meeting, uh, the day before the attack, they approved covert operations to try to remove the Taliban from power. Um, and after the following day's attacks, it's sort of a, a modified version of this covert plan that um, they, they started implementing September 20th. But the reason I bring this up is that it suggests that you know, Washington actually thought that Afghanistan was a good candidate for regime change and that this could work. Um, they weren't just making this decision under distress um, duress of, you know, the September 11th attacks. Um, third reason is, um, you know, Washington was really enthusiastic about Karzai um, for a number of reasons. Um, one, Karzai had relations with the CIA going back to the 1980s with Operation Cyclone. He had been a go-between between the CIA, the ISI, and the Afghan Mujahideen. But unlike many other people, he didn't have much blood on his hands from doing that. Um, secondly, Karzai had strong relationships um, with the U.S. He speaks English fluently. I think like six of his eight brothers live um, in the United States. If you ever are in Cambridge, his brother has an excellent restaurant called Helmond. I highly recommend. Um, Third, you know, uh, Karzai had a lot of like strong um, political credentials. Um, he was a relative of the former king. Um, his father is the leader of a, a powerful clan. Um, he had been the deputy foreign minister prior to the Taliban. Um, so he was just sort of, you know, politically a good person. And finally, uh, Karzai is Pashtun, which is the, the largest ethnic group um, in Afghanistan with 42% of the population and also the ethnic group that the Taliban draws from. And so we thought that we could help co-op 
Pashtun support by supporting Karzai. All right, so for all these reasons, um, you know, he checked all the boxes and he was saying exactly what the Bush administration wanted to hear, that, you know, he would uh, crack down on terrorism, he believed in democracy, he wanted to bring markets to his country, you know, every everything. He had strongly aligned preferences with Washington. Um, it was also believed that he had um, popular support within Afghanistan. Um, in fact, he won the 2004 election with 55% of the popular vote, um, making him the first democratically elected leader of Afghanistan, um, which given the, uh, you know, the how complex the political system is in Afghanistan is a remarkable feat. Okay, so um, as I lay out in the paper, um, particularly during Bush's first term, um, Hamid Karzai and, and Bush enjoy um, very good relations. Um, the U.S. was very initially very optimistic about how well the regime change went in Afghanistan. Um, but by around 2004 and 2005, the, this uh, relationship began to crack because of this interest asymmetry that we talked about in the paper. Um, and at root is just this conflicting interest between Washington and Kabul. Um, what the U.S. wanted, F, wanted Karzai to do was effective uh, counterinsurgency. Um, and to have more effective counterinsurgency, he thought that we thought that he had to have better governance for the country and crack down corrupt, corruption. Um, we saw that the corruption of the Afghan regime as you know one of the, the fundamental you know impediments to building a stable political system um, in Afghanistan. Karzai, for his um, part, he understood that you know, with a country as complicated um, and as ethnically heterogeneous as Afghanistan, in order for him to maintain power, he had to try to bring together many different coalitions. Um, and in order to do this, he needed to buy off his domestic opponents um, via corruption, via graft and other things that the US disliked. Um, and he also understood that the Taliban was not going away anytime soon. Um, and he wanted to negotiate with them to bring them into some role of government, which of course the United States at this point was, was opposed to doing. Um, so these just fundamental, you know, conflicting interests about how to govern the country um, led the US and Afghanistan to, to start, you know, fracturing the regimes. Um, once the Afghan insurgency picks up in 2005, this relationship really starts to split. Um, the Taliban, you know, tried to deride um, Karzai, call him America's chief puppet, um, and tried to create domestic opposition to him. And as I tried to process trace in the case study, um, beginning in 2005, Karzai facing this domestic pressure begins distancing himself from Washington, taking more, you know, anti-Washington um, Beliefs he criticizes American military actions. Um, you know, a number of high-profile uh, American blunders, such as burning Korans and an incident where a U.S. soldier killed 16 Afghan children. Um, he very publicly criticized Washington for doing it. And um, you know, as the insurgency grew, uh, as one Afghan minister uh, <laughs> phrased that he said, Karzai went from an Afghan Mandela in 2002 to an Afghan Mugabe in 2007. Um, despite all of this, you know, Karzai and, and Bush had, you know, a relatively firm foundation of their of their relationship. So even as, you know, things began to deteriorate, they were still okay. Once Obama came into office, though, things got even worse. Um, the Obama administration was fundamentally skeptical of Karzai from the front, from the beginning. Um, Joe Biden 
uh, walked out of the dinner with Karzai after Karzai refused to renounce the corruption and his government. Hillary Clinton called it a narco state. Um, and, um, you know, as the relationship just completely tries to deteriorate, um, Washington tried to improve it by um, what I said, off the books aid. But really, they were spending millions and millions of dollars of cash or trying to, to bribe them back into compliance. Um, this didn't work. Um, in 2009, um, there's some evidence that uh, the US began trying to feel around in Afghanistan if there was somebody else that we could support in the elections. Um, Holbrook was putting out feelers to see if, if there was another candidate we could back. Um, Karzai got wind of this and of course was very upset with the United States, um, even though he did win re-election. Um, and you know, the, the paper concludes that uh, you know, the relationship between the two states just fundamentally deteriorate. Um, Karzai's hurting description to uh, the US when he decides not to run, when he leaves because um, he no longer run to uh, for re-election. He says, to the American people, give them my best wishes, my gratitude. To the US government, give them my anger, my extreme anger. Um, I like this, this quote from a European diplomat describing uh, Washington's relationship with Karzai. Never in history has any superpower spent so much money, sent so many troops to a country, and had so little influence over what its president says and does. Okay, so the conclusion that I, I hope that I came from that state, um, from this, this case, was just how these, this interest asymmetry can lead to this you know, catch-22 um, between the installed leader and their foreign backer and how that can drive a wedge between the two states. Um, so my conclusion is that contrary to the regime change optimist, um, we don't think that, that states can transform their relationships with their adversaries by um, replacing their leaders, democratizing their targets, creating dependent regimes or installing puppets. Um, instead, we, that, we argue that these conflicting external and domestic interests will drive a wedge between the intervening and the target. Um, and our quantitative analysis of UN voting behavior along with our case study of Afghanistan, we hope reinforced um, this conclusion. Okay, um, so that's it. Um, I, I appreciate being able to present everything. Um, if you don't mind, I do have a couple of questions I, I would love to hear your thoughts on. Um, one question I, I've had is just the framing of the paper. So I kind of, the way I framed it now, um, kind of just laying out the hypotheses, I think it's, it's good for clarity, but I kind of don't like that I'm not saying more like from a big IR theory perspective, because I actually do feel like I have more of a stake in this. Um, so I was wondering if you like the sort of the hypothesis testing framing, whether you think it might be more powerful if we laid it out like our theory um, and you know, more centrally instead of just making one of many competing hypotheses. Um, a second argument or second question I had is just uh, any thoughts on how we could improve like the, the, the stats. I know UN voting behavior isn't a great proxy. If you have any thoughts of better tests or other types of analyses we can do uh, would be greatly appreciated. Um, yeah, but other than that, I'm just looking forward to the questions and I thank you all for your time. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, super clear and uh, definitely interesting. And um, uh, I look forward to the conversation. Um, uh, to remind everyone um, to get on the queue, you um, go to the participants part of um, 
Zoom and uh, click the raise hand option to get yourself on the clue on the queue. If while you are interacting with Lindsay, well, one person is interacting with Dr. O'Rourke, um, I, I should say more formally, even though she's a friend. Um, uh, if while one of you is interacting, somebody else has a follow-up question on that specific point that is a brief question, you can communicate that to me and get in briefly right on that question by either giving the thumbs up in the participants section, or you can just send me a private chat saying you have a two finger intervention or a, or a follow-up question. Um, do not on pain of death, suddenly smoke from the sky, use the two finger as a way to ask a brand new topic that has no relationship to what has gone before without getting on the queue. This is for the same topic but good interested conversation. And we are totally in favor of having that occur. So um, you can get, you can uh, ask a follow-up question through that mechanism. Um, the last thing I'll say is when you are recognized to um, ask a question, I will unmute you and you can ask your question. You can stay unmuted until the back and forth. You can ask follow-ups yourself. You can just interact with Dr. O'Rourke until that question is done, and then you can remute or we may remute for you. But um, uh, but you can stay unmuted during the answer to the question in case you want to have a follow up. And we also ask that while you are interacting with Dr. O'Rourke, you turn on your video so that she can see you instead of just having the voice from the void. Okay, with that. Um, I've been trying to establish the pattern of having undergraduates ask initial questions. And so um, I would love it if an undergraduate would um, uh, volunteer to ask. I think there's lots of interesting questions that could be asked. Um, can I prize an undergraduate into starting? Excellent. Um, uh, Ryan McHugh, first on the list. Wonderful. So this is maybe a question about the statistics or maybe what the statistics don't say or can't say yeah. is um, how do we know that the governments in the United States or their, you know, in the intervening nation just weren't bad at regime, regime change and that the reason that they failed was because they didn't know how to do it the right way. Like they uh, they didn't get their their leader installed, or they should have chosen somebody better. Um, yeah, yeah. Like how you you brought up the the Afghanistan case study, and my thinking there is like, was it necessarily because there were systemic issues that caused Afghanistan and the United States to disagree? Or was it just that the United States didn't understand the boundaries through which they had to conduct regime change in Afghanistan? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I don't think the stats can get to that. I think that's something I have to get to in a, in a case study. Um, but I think you're right that in many of these cases, the, the appeal of regime change is so great. The, thing, the idea that you can just install a new leader and then all of a sudden you'll have a state that does what you want them to do, um, that sometimes... Uh, not just American policymakers, but many policymakers have overlooked the conditions on the ground in the target state, which made it just sort of 
domestically infeasible. Um, in fact, I think it's kind of almost a paradox that to get to the point of conducting regime change against a, another state, it almost has to be a relationship that is so out of whack that you can't coerce or bribe or through sticks and carrots or diplomacy, get that state to act in your interests, which almost, you know, sort of de facto means that whoever you installed is going to face really strong pressures not to act the way that you wanted to. Um, which to me just suggests that regime change is very seldom going to work. I think there could be these rare cases when you're going to install somebody who has popular support and shares your preferences. But most of the time, that's not what you're doing with regime change. Um, the, the times that those did happen, it's you know oftentimes like you're liberating them from a third party or something like that. It's not um, just overthrowing a, a country. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think you're tapping into like a deeper skepticism about regime change that I agree with. Um, I don't think the stats can answer one way or the other. Okay, that answers my question. I didn't honestly know um, like how much statistical analysis could, or how, how much light statistical analysis could shine on it, uh, or whether it was just, this is more of a, a normative arena. Yeah. Um, yeah, there might be some sort of some sort of test that you could do it if you could have some sort of statistics where you could have a measure of like how far off the the person you're installing is from the, the preferences of the population you could get to it but our analysis didn't do that but it's a good suggestion thank you Aaron. thank you yeah thanks ryan um uh next we have uh zoe dash Hi, hello, Dr. Rort. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. Um, my question is on whether or not you uh, analyze whether um, the the regime type of the, the country who's attempting to impose a regime matters. Because at least with the example of Muhammad Karzai, it seems like the relationship, though unstable, was potentially salvageable, but the fact that a uh, new president came into place um, sort of changed the nature of the relationship. Uh, oh, you cut out. Is everybody? It does look like Zoe is frozen. Regime change would oh. uh, change the character. Okay. Of, uh, you froze for a second, Zoe, but if I, if I understood enough of your question, you were asking whether the, the regime type of the target state is going to impact the subsequent relationship between the two regimes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we did look at that a little bit. Um, so there's arguments both ways. There's arguments who believe that like, if you install like a strong man, a dictator, it's one person, you could potentially have a longer term relationship with them because it's, mm -hmm. um, whereas a democracy, argument in favor of democracies that democracies have particularly favorable relations. The counter argument, as you just pointed out, it means a new leader can be elected and you can lose some of the goodwill. Um, we tested, so when we looked at like the leadership versus institutional, um, so the leadership's caught when we installed like um, authoritarian regimes and the institutional was uh, the democratization. And neither of them um, on their own, um, neither of them was effective um, in changing the political affinity between the two states. Um, so I think, 
I think one of the things I want to do in subsequent versions is look a little, go into that a little bit deeper, um, because um, simply having an authoritarian versus a democracy, like there's multiple different types of authoritarian regimes and military versus personalist dictatorship and stuff like that. So we can look at that into to greater depth. Um, and we could also look at, um, primarily when we look at the interveners, it was often the United States installing democracy. I'm curious to see, say if we look at Soviet cases installing communism, if um, we might find more successes. I think that's a really good suggestion. Um, and I think there, there, there could be something there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great. Um, uh, so uh, next up is uh, Ben Dennison. Thank you, uh, Lindsay. It's great to see you. And thank you for uh, uh, presenting uh, this excellent work. I think I've actually seen a version of this uh, previously. So it's great to see it evolve. Um, I had a couple of thoughts just on the questions you asked at the very end that maybe could be helpful in terms of framing and also different metrics. Um, in terms of kind of, they kind of go together because I think in using the UN data and limiting yourself to post 1946 and just knowing the case list that you're looking at, you're getting rid of so many cases that you possibly could use in the universe of cases, yeah. but I'm not sure exactly what the, um, statistics are actually telling us. It was such, you know, there's such a large M with only so few cases yeah. of actual regime change in there that I'm a little bit, um, worried about is just kind of drawing a story from this narrow period of history. Uh, and what I was thinking is, what uh, does political affinity actually like buy you in the international arena? So like, that's like what I'm missing kind of from this story is I don't know uh, kind of what political affinity gets you. Um, like if, cause what I'm thinking of is in the way from your own book and also Melissa Willard Foster's new book, there's almost an argument that like uh, the relationship's so bad already like if things are not, if you're getting the like a one policy change that you want, um, but your relationship's not getting any worse, it's just staying the same. That's still a net benefit. You've gotten, you, you haven't gotten a policy, you've gotten the policy you want to change. So for instance, when the US is going into these Caribbean nations uh, in the early 20th century doing regime change, they just want the debt to be better. They don't care if the relationship's better, but like, look, the relationship didn't get worse, the debt solved, we're happy, it's good enough. Um, so I guess kind of if there was a framing on like, what does the political affinity uh, get you? And like, you could even tie it back and, you know, you know, going back to Metternich, he has all these quotes talking about how he felt obligated to go to regime change throughout Europe through these wars of secession, um, trying to, you know, make sure that these states didn't kind of grow and become alternative regimes that would threaten him or just, you know, some type of theoretical story that would capture uh, the more historical cases that I know you and Alex have in your data. I think would yeah. be helpful. And one and one possible metric, just to kind of finish up, I was thinking of, I think uh, Liz Saunders has this, um, I could be wrong with the temporal dimension, but like the number of diplomats being sent between countries or the number of like diplomatic cables going back and forth, uh, that might be a way to like kind of track, like if the diplomatic relationship is getting better um, over time, maybe that's one proxy for, it's a better relationship. Um, but I would spend a lot of time thinking about like, what exactly is it, do you want political affinity or do you want like some policy to be changed in the country? Because uh, my guess is in most of these cases that narrow policy change and if the relationship gets better, you know, that's just a, a side benefit. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I agree with you. I'm not thrilled with political affinity. I'm kind of, you know, 
in my book, I did UN voting behavior. I also did like foreign policy portfolio similarity, which is kind of just like whether you have the same alliances. But I think they're both pretty imperfect for getting at what we're actually trying to, to yeah. get here. One idea I had was like, there's not a huge number of cases here. What if we just went through like the, I don't know, 180 cases in our sample or something altogether and just tried to code it on the issue of the disagreement, whether it resolved or not. But then I, I was thinking that people might just find that kind of subjective. And a lot of the times it's not a simple yes, no, there's multiple things going on. So I don't know how other people would, would feel about that. I mean, there's some studies of like sanctions that have done similar things. And I, I thought about trying to do that. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, sometimes it's just about the particular policy. Like you might not care whether they vote alongside you and the UN on a whole bunch of things. You just want them to, I don't know, not elect this candidate or something like that. So. Yeah, I would love to hear other people's thoughts. You know, it's something I've struggled with. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure what the best answer is there, but um, thank you. Sorry, I couldn't give it more helpful, but no, that's great. You know, that's the that's the framing I would kind of go towards that direction. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to see you, so it's a pleasant, doubly pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, uh, so next on the list is Alana Rothkopf. Uh, who? Hi, thank you for, um, for your paper. I really enjoyed reading it. And my um, question slash comment really dovetails well with what Ben was asking. And because what really struck me um, when I sort of read sort of the, the first question of, that's really about the relationship. Can you turn enemies into friends or Foes into friends. And I guess the first thing that I think about is what does the bilateral relationship between the countries look like? So, I mean, the first thing I thought of was trade, but that's actually quite poor because countries that don't like each other trade with each other all the time. But, um, but I guess thinking more about things like um, what Ben suggested with the diplomatic cables or like sporting events, or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I am struggling to think of a good one, but maybe just if focusing less on things like how similar they are in the things that they do, um, or because they don't have to like the same things to have a good relationship. And so I'm wondering if there's ways to really just focus on, and I, I actually really like the idea of looking specifically at the cases, and I don't think it's subjective, or any more subjective than coding a data set, so. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, I, I, um, but yeah, thank you again for the paper. I really enjoyed it. And I, and I, I guess yeah, the main takeaway of my comment is to think about the, the bilateral relationship rather than just how they're behaving on the world stage. But yeah, yeah thank you. Oh, that's a great suggestion. Thank you. I appreciate that. Maybe we can look at a whole bunch of different factors to try and come up with some composite or something like that that might mm -hmm. be better than just focusing too heavily on one. Looking at a whole bunch of different factors definitely introduces challenges, you know, weighting the different factors or what factors, like that is a much less clean way of doing it than either what Alana's suggesting yeah. or what you are currently doing. Now that might be worth it, the trade-off, but it does like that turns it into mush. <laughs> now you can maybe have delicious mush that's possible, <laughs> but um, you know, it's danger, Will Robinson, danger. Um, uh, so instead of injecting myself, um, uh, I'm going to stick with the list, uh, even though I'm tempted. Uh, Mike Dash. Uh, 
Hey, Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank you. Yeah, uh, good to see you too. Uh, very interesting paper. Um, you know, I was sort of thinking uh, the Alliance portfolio would be a better measure than um, the UN votes, but uh, I'd forgotten you'd already used that. And I guess you're not satisfied with that as a, uh, a, a superior measure. So, I mean, that's really all I've got on uh, a better measure of the dependent variable. Bigger question I had as I was reading the paper, and this is sort of a framing point, is uh, I'm not sure you know, what the hook is for the paper um, at this point. Okay. And it seems to me there, there could be two. One is uh, if you think um, that the, uh, you know, uh, the world of FERCs uh, is not over and, you know, maybe you think uh, that, uh, you know, with the uh, coming to power of a new administration in the United States, um, you know, the stock of FERC uh, might go higher. And, okay. you know, so if you thought that that was uh, the case, you know, that would uh, add more urgency to the, uh, to the paper. Mm. Um, another possibility, though, is the puzzle of the FERC. And my colleague, uh, Ben Dennison, uh, you know, already uh, spoke, but didn't, you know, sort of met, mention uh, his own work, which is, you know, the whole question of why, given that uh, FERCs don't work very reliably, we still end up doing it. Um, yeah. And that could be sort of a, uh, a theoretical way of framing the paper, which is, you know, whether you buy his arguments uh, or not, uh, it seems inevitable that we're going to keep getting sucked into these things. Yeah. Um, and so given that, you know, an empirical assessment uh, of the sort that you and Alex are undertaking uh, is important. Although then the problem is, is if Ben's right, uh, then even if you're right, we're still going to keep doing these, uh, these dumb things. Yeah. Uh, I guess, you know, it's an interesting intellectual puzzle. It's not very satisfying for you because I know you want to fix uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, but, uh, you know, uh, whether we can actually do that or not, uh, I don't know. Um, but it does seem to me, whichever way you go, uh, the paper needs a little bit more uh, of a, uh, a hook than it has. It's got, you know, uh, some a literature, uh, although uh, in some cases a literature uh, that's getting a little bit uh, long in the tooth at this point. Yeah. And it's got some very interesting findings. But again, you know, uh, why do those findings matter for um, a current readership? And I, I think that's the part of the framing, you know, that you should give some more thought to. Yeah, no, that's a great suggestion. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, particularly how we started with like these historical examples of Mexico and stuff like that. Um, you might just think, oh, it's off the table, but it'd be really easy to reframe it as, you know, people still debate regime change in Iran. They're still talking about it in Venezuela and in uh, North Korea and so forth and have some quotes of, well, whoever won the, the elections today, somebody in their administration um, talking about it would certainly, yeah, it's a little embarrassing. I don't have that. 
Um, yeah, I like your idea too. Like the the question of why do we still get FERCs even if they don't work? Um, and I, I admired Ben's work and bring that in more. And I think maybe sort of the something I've thought about in my own work, which I never really say that much, but it's just like the stamp, the subset of international disputes that lead to regime change are these particularly bad cases where you're particularly less likely to see it work. So they're kind of like doomed for failure from the start, uh, which might be something I want to highlight more and, and bring forward because um, it, I think, it, you know, helps our case and maybe makes it a little bit more theoretically interesting um, that, you know, anytime people start claiming that we need to do regime change to solve this problem, suggest that it's a problem that can't be resolved by regime change. A better hook. Yeah. <laughs> Great, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Great suggestions. Um, all right. Uh, um, I'm still tempted, but next on the list is uh, Fritz Heinzen. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I, I enjoyed this. Uh, I, I must. Ad I'll quickly admit ahead of time that I only had a few minutes to look at your paper. And I'll go back and look in, in depth here. Um, and I found your framework fascinating, very interesting. And then uh, the part that I would know a little better is, is the Karzai case, and, and I, I was intrigued by that. And it made me then think about back to your framework. And, and this is the nature of allies. And when allies, uh, not creating allies, but pre-existing allies, and their roles. And, and um, one of my colleagues is writing the uh, three volume uh, official history for his country in Afghanistan. And so we talk at times about this, his country and the US. And uh, it, it was very interesting how a number of the US allies took the same approach with Karzai initially. This is a positive experience, this is good. And then things start to fall apart. Yeah. And, and uh, but, Thinking in this case of not just Karzai, but in other cases here, um, you, you have various levels of allied action of, of support for the US or opposition. And in the case of Afghanistan, of course, it's very interesting because ISAF, was it the first, first foreign uh, or first non-US uh, to run ISAF is German. Not long after that, it's Canadian and so on. And they these are countries that committed major forces or significant forces, significant amounts of money, um, stayed for many years, 2014 for Canada, others are still there. And so obviously the US is the main driver. There's no question about that. And, and when I saw your, your references to Holbrook and all, I mean, all these interactions between US diplomats, that's always key. But I'm just sort of curious if if you have a way or how you how you value or look at without again overcomplicating. This is gonna I, I know make it more complicated for any frameworks. Yeah. But allies cooperating, allies resisting. Yeah, I um I'm a little embarrassed to admit I haven't really thought about bringing in um, European allies and, and bringing them into the, the dynamic. Um, I think that's a good suggestion. Um, It'd be interesting to see, you say your friends say that many of uh, the same, like mirror the same basic relationship with the United States where they started off very positively and then this this fundamental yeah. shift led them to, to split. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting because you could see then whether it's it's simply like the interest asymmetry or whether it's actually like an anti-American backlash. 
um, that's driving it in, in a way. Um, so I think it, that would be worthwhile looking into just to see what each state was expecting going into and then, you know, how they diverged. Um, do you mind if I ask you, you have a friend who wrote a, like a three volume book on he's this? Right now he is, he is writing, he's, he's actually, he's finished writing the three volume history, but his uh, government, uh, um, his Ministry of Defense and others get a, another look at it uh, ah. before it comes out. I would be glad to, I would be glad to email you. He would, because he, I think he would be very interested in your work. I actually invited him today, but he could not because he is working, he's trying to finish this up, but yeah. he would be glad to e exchange possibly some ideas on that because I, we have discussed Karzai specifically and how, um, it was pretty much mirrored for a while, the U.S., uh, very cooperative uh, yeah. approach. Well, yeah, if you don't mind, I, I would really <laughs> love if you could make an introduction. Um, yes. Send you an email um, afterwards and, and try to set that up. Um, no, I'll be glad to. I, it, you know, these the th problem is with official histories, too, of course, you know, who can look at when and so on and so forth. There's always that kind of a... Yeah, but it just... Uh, I just want to talk to yeah, no, in terms of... He is... He is He's very engaged and um, he, he, he works with, he, he's often in the US, you know, working with US uh, military and defense folks. Uh, so no, he, he'd be glad to, and I'll send you the contact info. Thank you. I really appreciate that. that. That's really generous of you. But again, very good. Thank you for your paper. It really, uh, I can't wait to sit down and look at it in detail and, and, no, and, and think of other- when All these people came on election day. I was yeah. impressed by all of your uh, your commitment to political science. This is, no, no, this is interesting. But your other case studies, that will be also interesting. What are some of the other ones you're going to have? Because- um, Obviously, Afghanistan as a current, it's a, still a current event. Uh, and so it's yeah. a heck of a, a case study to have, although Karzai is sort of come and gone. Yeah, um, I don't know. We hadn't debated adding any additional cases. Um, I've had so much frustration with the stats that one of the suggestions I've made is maybe we should just have two case studies instead of messing with stats. Um, Alex was less sold on that idea, but... Um, I don't know. I'll be curious if anybody else thinks that might be a superior way to go. Um, Very good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Fritz. Very nice to meet you. So I think I am going to interject at this point. Um, uh, be, you know, people hopefully won't get too annoyed and throw me out. Well, I mean, they're going to throw me out as chair of the seminar no matter what. So I might as well. But um, so uh, I guess let me let me ask three-ish things that I think might be short and um, up to you how you want to interact with them. So the first is on I, just reacting to the case study thought question of whether to have more case studies. Um, I think you just convince different audiences different ways, um, particularly if you want to focus on uh, disentangling the um, different causal stories that you're offering. Yeah. Case studies are likely to be more helpful um, in doing that. Um, but just looking at the average effect is kind of kind of a meaningful thing for you. Um, you know, so I wouldn't want to necessarily, if you could figure out maybe a better way to measure things, give up the quantitative. Um, but I was not convinced by your logic, arguing that the Afghanistan case was a great case for you. Um, a bunch of the claims that you made about why the Afghanistan case was a great case or why it's a, a, a likely case for a successful FERC 
not why it's a likely case for a successful FERC leading to high affinity. Now, you might be able to make additional, you know, come up with additional logic why Karzai was especially likely to have high affinity for the United States, you know, living here, speaking the language, whatever, you had some things about that. But a lot of these things you were focusing on, it seemed like he had support among Pashtuns, he wasn't too tainted by the CIA, whatever, all of those things about how he could get some support within Afghanistan seemed to make it more likely that he would succeed in forming a government not necessarily make it more likely that that government would have affinity for the United States. And so I thought maybe you were barking up the wrong tree a little bit with your claims about case selection and finding other cases where it was more likely that you would get positive affinity. Just uh, this point, um, so I have a whole bunch of quotes that I didn't include of like Bush and Karzai talking about each other in like 2002, where they're calling each other best friends and, and like just talking about how they, they, they hit it off and all that. Would that help persuade you a little bit more um, about- uh, it, could, it could, I mean, so that's, a, you know, again, I guess it depends on, you know, how much do you think the individual palliness of leaders of democratic governments is supposed to cause policy affinity or supposed to cause the policy change we're looking for. I mean, I'm not even sure exactly what policy change we were demanding of Afghanistan other than help us kill bin Laden, which they didn't really do very much to begin with. But in any event, you know, sorting out, you know, what, what affinity means in the case probably is, is going to yeah. also be helpful. Anyway, so that's the first thing. The second thing I wanted to, to, uh, ask a little about is I felt it was strange in both the presentation and in the paper to talk about your covert data set and your overt data set with zero discussion of how the hypotheses related to whether the regime change attempt was covert or overt or how you might think there's a what relationship there is between you know, the covert and the overt things that appear in your data set, you know, why you choose one, not the other, what effect that should have on affinity, you know, it's just weird to have, hey, here's two data sets, no conversation about how they relate to each other, how they relate, the characteristics of the data sets relate to the hypotheses. And then I'll just put the third thing on the table quickly, which, um, uh, was I, I didn't believe your predictions uh, necessarily of your your realist theory and your alleged reverse dependent uh, re reverse dependence theory. Um, so the realist theory, a your quote from Mearsheimer doesn't help you because it says it talks about great powers um, being constrained by the circumstances. Now you might say little countries are even more constrained, that would be fine. But we actually tend to think the dynamics of little countries are, are different um, than the dynamics of big countries. And it would strike me that in many cases of regime change, uh, a realist sitting in the little country that has just been regime changed might recognize the international context to them that is relevant to them is there's this big country that just changed my government. Right? So the biggest threat to them is the, the government that just put them in, the, the foreign patron that just put them in power. And then the question is, how does the realist prediction, when the, when the little country identifies the big threat is the country that just forked them, how are they supposed to react? 
And if you think they're a powerful country, you might expect them to balance and therefore not, you know, not have um, the friendly relations you're predicting. But if they're a tiny country next to a gorilla, the normal realist prediction is this country threatens me and I'm tiny. And so I might bandwagon. It might actually, the realist prediction might be affinity. Um, and, um, you know, I kind of have a, a similar reaction on the, um, uh, the reverse dependence argument. You say it should predict that the relationship should get worse because now that the patron is invested in the new post folk protege, the post FERC protege could tell him to stuff it. Um, true enough. But the whole point of the FERC was that the previous government also told them to stuff it. So that's not yeah, going to make the relationship make it worse. worse. It's going to make the relationship the same and bad, right? So yeah. your prediction that the FERC leads to worse affinity does not follow to me. Anyway, I've now blathered on for a long time. We have a long queue, so say what you want with respect to what I said, but. Okay, um, that was all very helpful, you do, thank you. Um, uh, yes, um, noted about the distinction between covert versus overt. I mean, I have a whole theory of that in my book. <laughs> I do not bring it in at all, uh, which you're right, it's kind of weird. Um, so yes, easy to bring in and talk about when we would expect to see one or the other. Um, with the realist logic, um, yeah, so that's like the kind of interesting thing where almost all of these are powerful states intervening into to weak states, which suggests that the weak state should bandwagon with the positive state or else risk being overthrown, but they don't, which for us is the, the, the fundamental problem. The fact that they won't bandwagon suggests that there's something very compelling, either like these domestic pressures or their international um, environment that makes them not bandwagon, which makes- But it's just not the realist prediction anymore. So, so you might be right empirically and it might help yeah. your preferred story, Yeah. but your realist hypothesis is no longer a competing hypothesis. Well, I mean, the realist thing is the same direction as us. The problem with the realism is we're both making the same predictions, but maybe we just drop the realism and just have us be the counter arguments type of thing. Um, because it's not necessarily clear from realism what the prediction is about the behavior we should type, try to see. We can talk more about this or you can just not believe me, but I think I was trying to make a clear case that the realist prediction is that is higher affinity. Oh, oh, I see, I see. But. Oh, I didn't, I didn't tweet that. Oh, okay. Right, because little states bandwagon with big states that threaten them and they've identified the threat, which is you just forked me. So like. It... Yeah. Unless they had a competing like great power that they could balance with. Instead. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. I didn't quite get your point at first, but that's a great point. Let me think about that more. So thank you, Eugene. Um, sure. Um, so, hey, we have another undergraduate. Um, fantastic. Um, I want to encourage all the other undergraduates too, but uh, uh, Fritz uh, Holtzgreffer. Hey, hello. Uh, thank you so much for an awesome presentation. It was definitely very interesting. I, um, my question was actually just touched on, um, but uh, I just want to ask about the overall impact of like the personal relationship between the leaders. Um, like you mentioned the strong relationship Karzai and Bush originally had referring to each other as best friends. Um, 
is this more of like a superficial relationship um, being just the product of like positive results in the ground? Or in your opinion, does this like personal relationship between the two leaders actually play like a pretty large role? And then uh, you mentioned like the souring of the relationship in like 2005 and then with the uh, uh, later Obama administration. Uh, was this more of a result of just like results in the ground not being as positive as before? Or was there like an actual genuine shift in the relationship? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, normally I'm pretty skeptical about the, the power of personal relationships between mm -hmm. leaders sort of overcoming these, these broader sort of structural factors. Mm -hmm. In the case of Karzai and Bush, they really did seem to personally get along a lot. Um, Bush would like, personally have video conferences with Karzai all the time and, and talk through things. So I think it, it is a rare example of maybe like that personal relationship salvaging, um, you know, things going bad for a long time. Whereas when Obama came in, um, there wasn't that. When they just sort of assessed the situation on the ground, they saw this leader who wasn't doing what America wanted him, him to do and were frustrated with him. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it had a decent impact during the Bush administration and sort of, you know, prevented things from going completely sour. But ultimately, I just don't think it's these personal relationships are that important um, in, in determining the two states' behaviors. Um, it's just my take. I think Afghanistan might be this kind of rare example of having two particularly close leaders. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question. No, I, I was kind of a, I kind of thought the same thing that the yeah. relationship would be more superficial. Like if the two yeah, countries are benefiting, then yeah, yeah, you can be friends in front of the TV screen or camera. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just look into that deeper and see if it's kind of just, I don't know, if they're just saying nice things. Um, mm -hmm. It's good for both of their countries to do so. I mean, some of the things I read behind the scenes were about like them having these, you know, these personal conversations and enjoying each other's company and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'm not sure how big of a deal that actually is, you know, or if it's just kind of a story that emerged about all of this. So um, I, I'll look into that more. Okay, thank you. It was really interesting. So I owe Ben Dennison a, an apology. He had a quick two finger actually on the last question um, and I didn't notice until too late. So um, let's go back to Ben for the quick two finger. Uh, Lindsay, just the, uh, the flag you just point about um, the realist uh, hypothesis. If you yeah. want to, if you read um, Bill Warforth's new H. Diplo uh, review of John Mearsheimer's book, um, yeah. he basically lays out like this is like why we expect all great powers to do regime change. So it's almost like a realist theory of regime change. Uh, really? to contrast that to contrast that why it's not just liberal hegemony that leads to this. It's like great powers do regime change. Every you know, throughout history. So that just might be a place where you can find to cite something else that gives this realist, the realist theory for how, why we would expect this. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Great. Um, so next on the queue is uh, Rose Kalani. Okay. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Rose, how are you? Good, how are you? Um, so uh, I have a couple of questions. One is sort of like a brainstorming question. The other one is a more discreet question. So I will start with the more discreet one, which is um, it occurs to me that there's another hypothesis that you could test 
um, that is often made in arguments uh, about FERC, which is that of a demonstration effect. And I don't know the literature well enough to know if other people have tested this, but you know, again, you know, one of the supposed benefits of FERC is we do Iraq and then North Korea does what we want them to do, Iran does what we want them to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it might be kind of interesting um, to look at, you know, whatever you decide your dependent variable is, if it's political definity is measured by UN voting or other sorts of things, yeah. um, is there any improvement in political affinity with some relevant subset of other forkable places by the same <clears throat> country, right? Um, and sort of how we might think about that. That could be you know, an interesting thing to explore. I don't know if people have looked at that or not, but it's definitely in the policy discussion. Yeah, I don't think anybody's looked at that, but that would be particularly if we do like the hegemonic regime changes, you know, like I talk about the US ones in the Western hemisphere and then like Essen talks about Iraq being a hegemonic regime change, mm -hmm. sort of see if there is any sort of evidence of like, I don't know, these other potential adversaries, you know, mm -hmm. being more uh, pro-American afterwards. Yeah, um, and maybe that's but, a separate paper, but maybe you can also tag it on without too much extra, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a good suggestion. Thank you, I never thought about doing that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and then the second point is, <clears throat> so I mean, I think that the way that the paper is written is extremely straightforward and easy to read, and that is all awesome. Um, <clears throat> I personally don't love the hypothesis testing style, but I think it's appropriate in this case. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I guess in terms of what are you really trying to get at? So, you know, there's the 2008 Hashimoto, Low, Ryder, uh, you know, in a different order. Um, and then there's you guys and you have conflicting results. And so the, the idea of this paper is that you want to look at a broader view of the FERC relationship or you want to look at a political, not a not a military sort of side of it. Or I guess I, I'm wondering to get like a more of a feel like what is it just like you want another data point to be like they're wrong and we're right? Or is it is it something different? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well the, the thing that the before we were looking at like militarized interstate disputes and we saw that FERC, you know, didn't decrease the, the frequency of conflict between the intervening and target states. In fact, sometimes they actually increase the subsequent likelihood of conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we thought was like, well, maybe conflict is just too high of a bar. You can't like, you know, the reason states have war are, are too tricky to resolve the regime change. You can get sort of lower level local cooperation. Um, and so that's why we were thinking of trying to expand it into like measures sort short of conflict of cooperation. Um, yeah. So that's where like the political affinity came from. The problem mm -hmm. is then just that, that our IV isn't like great <laughs> at capturing the thing that we want to capture. It I haven't been able to come up with a better one like your IV or your DV? I'm sorry, my your DV. DV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my yeah. DV of trying to cooperate, like to capture like how cooperative relationships are short of war is what we wanted to do with this. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I like the idea of looking at <clears throat> the actual cases. I don't know statistically how you would go about that. I, I could imagine you know QCA ways of going about that because it's something that I've worked with myself, but. Um, yeah, I'm just sort of trying to think through theoretically, like, okay, so like, let's look at the Iraq war case. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I don't know, is Iraq, do they vote with us more? Like, do you happen to know? Um, and when I think about the, the intervention itself and sort of the policies that drove it, I mean, we, nobody really knows why we did it. We may never figure out why, but we know the three stated rationales, right? Uh, democracy promotion, uh, um, nukes, and terrorism, right? Yeah. So, okay, it's democratic-ish, um, but they haven't gone nuclear. Yes. And I think they cooperate with us on terrorism. Now, there never was terrorism coming out of Iraq. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a weird one. But, you know, would it, is there a case to be made that this is a success in the sense that if at least one of the rationales is we want them never to go nuclear, they're not, right? Yeah. And how would you capture that sort of more broadly? Yeah. yeah, a brainstorming question than like a question question. Yeah, I mean, I think with Iraq, I would argue it's another example of a state that means so their leader, we created a democratic election to have a new leader. And then the leader just fundamentally wasn't doing the things we wanted them to do, like supporting the Sons of Iraq pro program or incorporating Shias into the ministry. There's all sorts of things that we were trying to get them to do and they wouldn't do. It's not necessarily captured in political affinity as, which is kind of like one of the reasons I sort of suggested maybe we just scrap the quantitative stuff and bring in a second case study and try to get more into the details with it. Um, I don't know how to capture it. Even if we just sort of like did try to set like our pre-intervention goals versus whether we met those goals post-intervention, that doesn't even capture it because they weren't building WMD, you know? Like that didn't change their behavior. We just like, yeah. Yeah, but they also haven't started trying. <laughs> right, now, now again, we don't know, right? Yeah. But I'm just trying to think of the counterfactual, like, is it like, when I think of the Iraq war, everybody now thinks of it as like, oh, this was a terrible state as a failure. Blah, blah, blah. I agree with all that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that's because we, our expectations are stupid going in. Yeah. You know, but if you look at, if you try to figure out, here are a few things we might've gotten out of it. Maybe there are some things we got out of it. Was that worth it? Probably not. Yeah. But yeah. It's less clear cut to me that it's a total political failure, right? Even though they don't, there's all kinds of stuff they don't do that we want them to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if we get cooperation from them on terrorism, maybe that's worth something. You know, I don't really think so, but it could be. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the argument that we could make to it is like with Iraq, it's basically our same basic dynamics. Like Saddam holding democratic elections, he's gonna lose because Sunnis are 30% of the population and the Shia leader would come to power. So he was never willing to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, Afterwards, you know, we have a new leader, they're democratically elected and they're Shia, uh, but they're still facing the same political constraints of having this like three-way divided society. And when we demand that they do certain things to make their country more stable, like Sons of Iraq and incorporating uh, Sunnis in the ministries and stuff like that, they also refuse because of the same basic domestic yeah. um, problem. And so like just the active regime change didn't it really improve our leverage over the state. Um, we weren't able to get what we want. It's a messier argument. Like, I think we're right, but I don't, I don't know how to mesh that onto any sort of like quantitative analysis or broad picture thing. So it's such a, like a case by case thing. And then I, my fear is like, okay, what if we were to uh, 
an article with like showing Iraq and Afghanistan went wrong. Well, we're like the 9,000th article to do that, you know? Um, so I don't know. Eugene, I see you shaking your head. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that would be a good article. Okay. Iraq and Afghanistan would not be a good article. Yes. Um. Um, so uh, we technically have four minutes remaining if anyone wants to chime in, you are most welcome. So we'll give a second for anyone who has a quick last hit. Giving it a second. All right, well, um, I think we had a fun, interesting discussion, lots of good ideas kicked around. I think it's a, a very interesting paper and I hope that some of our conversation will spur ways to move it forward. And we no, look forward to seeing where it goes really want to thank everybody for taking the time to read it and have such good suggestions. Um, you gave me a lot of great ideas. I'm still not sure exactly what to do with this paper, um, but you pushed me in some great directions and it's definitely going to be better for um, because of this. So I really thank everybody, particularly on election day for hanging out and doing this with me. Great. Today. Well, so thanks everyone for coming. Um, good luck with the end of the semester and I look forward to seeing you again uh, at Endis seminars when I'm not running things uh, next semester. So please come back and uh, as we head out, let's all thank Lindsay for a terrific seminar. Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.